to see you. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Riley. I am the youth pastor here. And uh, I, some of you here might be on vacation. Anyone on vacation here? I don't know if you want to point yourself out, but we got a couple people. Yeah, they're like, whoop, quick, don't look at me. Uh, well, welcome, guys. You guys decided to come to church on your vacation. That is so cool. Thanks. Welcome here. Uh, we hope that you feel welcomed and that you uh, just find a, a, a welcoming face here. Uh, and the rest of you guys... You're here because you live here, and we don't have to go anywhere because we're already living in the Okanagan. Isn't that fantastic? I don't, I don't get people who on a long weekend go to, like, like Chilliwack or something. No, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying anything about, bad about Chilliwack, but, like, Okanagan, Chilliwack, you know, like, to me, I'm like, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. Um, but we're glad that you guys are joining us today. Uh, so whether it's your first time, whether you've been here for a while, um, we are continuing our summer series called the Summer on the Mount. Okay, and what, that, what we are doing is we're going through Jesus' most popular and lengthy sermon uh, called the Sermon on the Mount and kind of unpacking it. What does it mean for us? What did it mean in that day? And we're just unpacking it and having a great time exploring uh, Jesus' word. Okay, and so today we land ourselves in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 to 48. Okay, so if you have your Bible you want to read out of, uh, you can grab that. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV today. Okay, and so before we start, let's understand the context of what we are learning, okay? And so chapter 5 starts, we learned about the Beatitudes, okay? Then we've talked about, Jesus talked about being salt and light. And then now in this, in this passage, starting in verse 17, he introduces what he's going to be doing for the rest of the chapter. Okay, and so what he introduces is he introduces the law. Okay, and the reason why he's talking about the law is that in, the, in that day, there was a lot of Pharisees and Sadducees, those who loved the law, and they followed it with the utmost strictness. Okay, almost too strict. They were too concerned about the law, and so Jesus is prepping his, his listeners to be like, hey, I'm about to do something according to the law. Something is, is going to change, and so he's starting to prep us for where we land for the rest of this chapter. Okay, and what Jesus did is he took six important Old Testament laws, okay, six of them. Okay, and what he's doing is he's taking them, taking them the Old Testament, and he's not changing them, but he's reinterpreting them based on the new life and the new light that he came to give. Okay, Jesus wants to deal with the attitudes and intentions of our hearts rather than simply the external actions uh, that we can do, especially what the Pharisees and the Sadducees love to do. Okay, so Jesus is fulfilling what the law was actually supposed to do in this next section. Okay, what I mean is this. If you are a parent in this room, also, actually everyone can, can understand this illustration, illustration. Okay, if you're a parent in this room, or if you're a kid, or if you're a parent that was a kid, you'll get this. Okay, you, uh, you have kids who are fighting, all right? You have kids are fighting, they're bugging each other, stuff like that. Uh, one's annoying the other one too much. So you got to step in and like, you know, Make them chillax a little bit. Calm them down a bit. Okay, and so you step in, you're like, you see this one sibling, you're like, hey, if you even touch this sibling, like, you're going to be in a timeout. Anyone been there? Where like, if you even lay a finger on them, I see some parents like, amen, <laughs> today, this morning, actually. Um, okay, they're like, if you even touch your sibling, you're going to have a consequence. Okay, they laid out a law. They're like, if you break this law, you're going to face the consequences. Okay, and as we know, what do, what do kids do? They're like, mm, where's the loophole in this? Okay, and so instead of touching the sibling, they go up and they start doing like this to them or stuff like that, like pretending to like tickle them, punch them, po poking them like near the eyes and stuff like that. Okay, and we all know that is equally, if not more frustrating than being touched. Okay, and so what they're doing is they're not breaking the law, but they're still being able to annoy their sibling enough that makes them mad. Okay, and so, and so instead, of the, instead of breaking the law, they don't do it, but the thing is, their, their heart's intention is still the same. 
They're still doing the same thing, even though they're not breaking the law. They're still trying to annoy their sibling, and they're doing it without breaking the law. Okay, and so that is what Jesus is trying to do. He's saying, hey, these laws are great, but they're actually not accomplishing the purpose that they were supposed to do. Okay, because people can still, uh, can, people still have the same attitudes and intentions behind their hearts, even if they aren't breaking that law. So what he's doing is he's fulfilling what the law is supposed to do. Okay, he's intensifying it to a point that if people then followed it, it wasn't just that they wouldn't break the law, but actually their hearts would be changed. And then thus, the Old Testament laws are then fulfilled because they are accomplishing its purpose. So that's what it means when Jesus is fulfilling the law. Okay, and so we land on these last two of Jesus' six Old Testament laws um, that he talked about. Okay, and these last two are like the climax of this part of the sermon. Okay, as he's been working down the six, these two are probably the hardest. Okay, nowhere is the challenge greater in this sermon. Okay, nowhere is the distinctiveness of the Christian countercultural even more obvious Okay, and nowhere is our need for the Holy Spirit uh, more known. Okay, so who's ready to be challenged today? You know? When I walk into church, even if it's a church here, even if it's another church, okay, when I open my Bible and I pray, I ask God, I'm like, God, would you challenge me? Would, would you challenge my hearts? Would you point out the areas where I've let the world slip in and changed my theology, changed my thoughts? Because in my opinion, I don't want to come to church, encounter Jesus, and leave the same. Because that's not the Jesus I worship. That's not the Jesus that changes our hearts. And so I hope you're ready. And if you're not ready, then I just ask you, take two minutes, pray, and ask Jesus to help you in your heart be ready to encounter change and to be challenged today. Okay, so we're going to start verse 38. I'm going to read 38 to 42. You can follow along. It'll be on the screen as well. We're going to kind of chunk it out, and then we're going to go verse by verse and kind of figure out what it's meaning. Okay, verse 38 says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Okay, in each of these examples... Is, a, is an action that we have a response to, okay? There's a response to these, uh, these, each of these actions, okay? In each of them, there's a justifiable response that uh, most people in the world would deem would be okay. If someone slaps you, you know, you'd be like, okay, what, what's a justifiable response? You can hit them back. It's self-defense, right? If someone steals something from you or takes something from you, the justifiable response is to take it back. We're like, that is fair. That is, that is more than fair, Okay, but Jesus changes that and says that we can actually choose to respond a different way. Okay, so we're going to dig into each of these examples really quickly, kind of understand what it meant to the listener of that day and then how it also uh, compares to us and applies to us now. Because the first couple says, and you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the, the other also. Okay, the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, very common in the ancient Near East. Okay, it was pretty much just a way to make sure that everything was even. Okay, that those who did something wrong, that there was not a greater kind of uh, uh, consequence that they had to do if, if they were caught. You know, it was like, if you did this, then, then, then uh, the equal response for the other person would be this. Okay, it was just a way to be even, to be equal. Okay, the slap as well is not referred to like someone just like, Okay, that's not, that's not what he's meaning. This slap was a kind of like a backhanded slap. 
So it was, it was the most kind of insulting um, way to hit somebody. It was very disrespectful. Okay, and so the response that Jesus was saying that people should take would have been a, a huge surprise to everyone. Because everyone would agree that it was fair to hit back, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Okay, similarly, when Jesus talks about the giving up your tunic, he says, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Okay, Jesus, again, is changing the game. He's saying, hey, this was our response. This was what, we, what the world kind of deems as how we should respond. But actually, we should do something else. Instead of exercising our right to get it back, that person should actually freely and willingly give up their outer cloak as well. So Jesus had in mind each person's property and their rights when he was talking about these examples. But instead of being able to get even, he said we should actually be willing to give more and offer up more. Okay, the next example, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Okay, Jesus is referring to a very specific Roman practice in that day. Okay, because as we know, the Romans occupied the Holy Land, occupied Jerusalem, all those areas. Okay, so they were in charge. And there was this rule, this law, that if a Roman soldier asked a citizen for help or being like, hey, I'm, I'm asking for help, he could force him to do some labor for him. So he could, and what it specifically was is he would ask and be like, hey, I choose you. Okay, you have to carry my backpack for a mile. Okay, a thousand paces. That was the law. That if they asked you, you had to do something for a mile. Okay, you might remember an example when Jesus was on his way to be crucified on the Via Della Rosa. Okay, he, was, uh, he collapsed with his cross. And they called upon Simon of Cyrene to get up and carry his cross, right? That was that forced law that he enacted. That you have to carry this for at least a mile. Okay, so that was the law that he was referring to in this moment, okay? And so he's saying, hey, if they ask you to do this, instead of going one mile, actually let go the second one freely. Okay, this would have been maddening to those in the day that, that, were, that fell under the, the zealots, you know, those that violently opposed the Roman occupation. Okay, because they, they said anything to do with the Romans was, was uh, you were helping the enemy, Okay, and so Jesus saying this, saying that we should actually willingly choose to go another mile with them would have been absolutely maddening to them. So he's trying to come, come against that kind of thinking. Okay, and lastly, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Okay, response to people's needs should be in willing generosity. Okay, compassion on those that Jesus had compassion on. Okay, so how do we bridge this gap? Okay, between their culture and ours. What does this mean for us today? Okay, it's pretty simple. You know, we can see that Christians are called to kind of go that extra mile on top of what uh, the world would do. Okay, kind of go that extra little mile. And that is correct, but it's not fully what Jesus had in mind. Okay, Jesus' call to his followers was to not assert their rights. Okay, this shouldn't be surprising to you if you read your Bible. Okay, it's not like those, you know, those like terms of agreements that you sign up for when you're like, when you go to a company, when you're ordering online, I don't know, when you're probably ordering food, you know, something like that. You know the ones that like have like 50 pages? They're like size three font. They're like, hey, read all this, and if you agree to this, sign. And they're like, can you hurry up? And you're like, there's 50 pages. And you're like trying to read, and you actually don't know what it says. Did anyone actually read those? Okay, I know we, none of us do. We're just like, yep, cool. We're like, where's the back? We flip all the way to the back. We sign it. We give it back to them, and we have no idea what we're signing up for. Okay, but when you become a Christian, this idea is kind of right on the front. It's not something that the Bible tries to hide near the bottom, in the fine print, 
printed in yellow. You know, they're not trying to hide it. It's right at the front. It's plain as day, and it's when you're taught in Christianity that you are, when you say yes to Jesus, you are not your own anymore because you were bought with a price, right? And that price was Jesus' body and blood shed on a cross for you. And so, again, you don't have to sign up. You don't have to say yes to Jesus. But if you say yes to Jesus, you are now bought with a price, and you are now his. And so what that means is that we then have to follow under his teaching and what he says and respond the way that he says. Okay, there's no ifs or buts. That is what it is. And so we have to respond the way that Jesus wants us to, and that is in humility and love. One commentary adds, to sum up this teaching, Jesus was not prohibiting the administration of justice, but rather forbidding us to take the law into our own hands. So instead, we have the ability to choose how we want to respond to the world around us. Choose how we are to react to different people we come across. Choose to be Jesus' hands and feet. Choose to respond the way that we want to respond. Choose the thinking of only ourselves or choose to show Christ in our actions and our words and choose to follow his teachings. Okay, we have a choice. Okay, by the way that we respond, we'll show people whose we belong to, the world or Jesus. Okay, now Jesus begins a second kind of little chunk, and he's continuing to build upon this idea. Okay, but remember, we're in at the last law that he is talking about. So this is the hardest one to follow. Jesus was prepping his, his uh, followers for this. So let's break it down. We're going to read it all, and then again, we'll slowly break it down. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. All right, remember, these were Old Testament laws that Jesus was fulfilling. Uh, when I read this, I don't know about you guys, but I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And I was like, wait. I know the law, love your neighbor as yourself, but I don't remember the law, hate your enemy. Okay, that was, there, nowhere in the Old Testament can you find this as a law. Okay, this was something that was added into by those who taught the Bible, by those who kind of wrote it down. This was not a law, but everyone knew it in that day because Jesus said, you have heard it said, which means everyone knows that you can uh, love, your, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, so why do they do that? Okay, it's like, again, I don't know why I have all the sibling-related illustrations, but uh, here we are, okay? It's like when you have a sibling, okay? And they, for Christmas, they got a really cool present, and you're like, wow, like, I really want to try that. I want this, okay? And so you ask them, like, hey, can I, once they're done, they're like, hey, can I please uh, play with your toy? And they're like, yeah, sure, go ahead. So you grab it, you run over here, and you start playing with it. You're having a good time. You're giggling by yourself, and your sibling looks over there and, like, sees you, and they're like, like, they don't like that you're having fun. They kind of want it back. So they come back and they're like, and they take it from you. They're like, I didn't mean you can play with it in that way. Or they're like, you know what? Uh, I said you could hold it, not actually use it. And they would take it away and then they can play with it on their own, right? Because they didn't like what you were doing and they wanted to benefit from it. They wanted it back. So it's exactly what the scribes were doing. Okay, they changed it to, to fit their own benefit. So Jesus is changing it and intensifying it again. Saying so instead of actually hating your enemies, we actually have to love them. Okay, so to understand 
what love means, we have to know what, what this word is in the Greek, in the original language, okay? Because English, we have one word for love, it's love. Okay, Greek has, has many different ones. Okay, the ancient world knew about uh, philia, love, which is friendship. It knew about eros, sexual love. It knew about storge, a love that binds families together. But this word that we find is agape, okay? And that means something very different. And this was not very known before Christ came along. Okay, one commentary puts it, for agape means a love that gives itself for the good of the recipient. It means love that springs from the nature of the donor rather than the real or fancied worthiness of the recipient. Okay, of course we cannot like our enemies. We cannot feel good about them. We cannot like them, but we can love them in the sense of agape love. We can desire and work for their highest good we can regard them as those who Christ died for and so loves uh, plenty. Okay, at least we can begin to move in that direction ourselves because we have been magnetized by the love of Christ. And so we should desire for others also to be magnetized by the love of Christ. Okay, so this is how Jesus commands us to respond to our enemies. Okay, and I, in my opinion, and the Bible agrees so, you know, it's, Jesus is allowed to command that, command that. Okay, I'm going to paraphrase it, but in Romans 5.10 it says, For this is how God has treated us. It is while we were enemies, while we were enemies to God, we were against him, that Christ died for us to reconcile us to God. So if he gave himself for his enemies, we should give ourselves to ours. Okay, verse 45, it says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Okay, Jesus is challenging his followers, again, to show the love of Christ to their enemies. Because God sends rain on the just and the unjust and on the good and the evil. Okay, and so we must reflect this as well in our actions to all. Okay, and if we do this, Jesus goes on to declare that only then shall we prove conclusively whose sons we are, whose daughters we are. For only then shall we be exhibiting a love like the love of our heavenly Father. Okay, so what, is, what more are you doing that this passage described? What is this plus that Christians must display? Okay, Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was, a, who was a Lutheran pastor during, uh, in Germany during the reign of the Nazis, said this, of what this plus or extra that Christians must display. He said, It is the love of Jesus Christ himself, who went patiently and obediently to the cross. The cross is the differential of the Christian religion. Okay, God expects us to live on a much higher plane than the lost uh, of this world, who return uh, good for good and evil for evil. You know, as Christians, we must return good for evil as an investment of this agape love. The last verse, that you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, okay? This one, we can get a little confused. We're like, wait, I thought, like, I thought Christianity was about, like, we cannot achieve perfection. Why does it say you therefore must be perfect? Okay, this is one of the moments where uh, the English word is not a good translation for the, the Greek word, okay? And so our English word of perfect is faultless and capable of error, Okay, but this isn't what this passage is saying. Okay, the word is used as teleos, which, mean, which doesn't mean sinless perfect, but means completeness. 
or wholeness, okay, becoming what was, one was designed for. And so our Christian calling is not to uh, imitate this world, but, but imitate the Father. And it's by this imitation of him that we become complete, that we become whole. And from that, the world will see Christ's love for them. It's through Jesus' agape love for us and our agape love for everyone else. And so when we accept Jesus' loving sacrifice for our sin, when we say yes to him and, and become adopted into his family, we must turn around and do the same for those who have sinned against us. Okay, I said nothing that this was going to be an easy sermon. This is not an easy passage. Okay, Christians are specifically called to love our enemies, okay, in a love that's not self-interested, right? There's no benefit to us, but we're called to that, and we can, we can all agree it is impossible to do that unless by the power and the supernatural grace of God. Okay, so how do we do this? You know, I'm not a counselor. I don't know clinical ways to do so, but I do know my Bible, and I know people in the Bible who have done what, they, what God is asking. Okay, so... My one example, maybe two, we'll see, um, is Joseph. Okay, Pastor Jared mentioned Joseph last week, but let me give a quick little recap. Okay, Joseph was the youngest sibling of all his brothers, and his brothers hated him. Okay, they hated him. And so one day they plotted to kill him. So Joseph came to his brothers, and they ripped off his cloak and threw him in a pit, and they were going to actually just murder him. Okay, they're like, hey, we got to kill this guy. But then they got the brilliant, brilliant idea when they saw some slave traders coming. They're like, hey, instead of having our blood on his, uh, or his blood on our hands... You know, let's, let's actually sell him into slavery, and then we can get some money back and split it amongst ourselves. And so that's what they did. They pulled him out of the pit, and they sold him into slavery to be gone forever, a slave forever, and they took the money themselves. Okay, and then Joseph sold into slavery in Egypt. Um, he was working as a slave, and then for uh, an unfortunate reason, he was accused of something he didn't do, and so he got thrown in prison. Okay, for years and years and years, forgotten in prison. Okay, a tough life for Joseph. But through God's grace, God helped him get up to a place where he was then second in command in all of Egypt. Okay, and God was working through him in that God uh, showed him that there was going to be a drought in a few years. So he should start stockpiling food in Egypt so that others can not starve to death but have food uh, during this drought. And so he started doing that. And the drought hits and his brothers come because they don't have any food. And so they come and again, they meet Joseph face to face. And they don't recognize Joseph because it's been that long. But Joseph recognizes them. Okay, and so in everyone's eyes, all, I think we can all agree, we feel that Joseph, had a, his justifiable response to them was to treat them harshly. Okay, we would say he was allowed to throw them in prison. He was allowed to make them rot. He was allowed to uh, send them away with no food. Okay, he was, that was justified because of what he had done or what they had done to him. Okay, but this is what Joseph does instead. Okay, he reveals himself to them and he says this, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Okay, he hated his brothers. Okay, we can know that by the way he treated them at first. He hated his brothers. Okay, and so he had every justifiable response to throw them in prison, to treat them harshly, but instead, he, when he looked at them, okay, he didn't see hatred because his eyes were not on his brothers Okay, he wasn't looking at his brothers. He was actually looking at the, his heavenly father and saying, you know what? He loves them. He loves me, and he put me in this place for everyone's good. Okay, and so his gaze was off of his brothers and on to a God who loves him. And so his love for God and God's love for them overshadowed his hate for his brothers. 
Okay, Stephen. Okay, Stephen in the New Testament, preaching this amazing sermon to people to repent and believe in Jesus. Okay, he did nothing wrong in the law's eyes. Okay, he was just preaching a sermon. But people started getting angry, and they started getting riled up, and they threw him out of the city. And then they started to pick up stones and stone him. Okay, they were killing him. Okay, and every, he had every right to be angry with his people because they were killing him for no reason. Okay, he had every right to ask God to strike him down. Okay, he had every right, but this is how he responded. He said, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Okay, he didn't ask for God to strike him down because his gaze was not upon these people. Okay, because if it was, then his hatred would have fueled, but instead his eyes were on Jesus, saying, Lord, forgive them for what they do. They may be murdering me right now, but I know that they deserve a second chance, and I pray that one day that they will come to know you and accept you as a personal savior. Okay, Stephen's eyes were not, his gaze was not fixed upon the people, but it was on God. And so he was able to not seek revenge. He was able to forgive. Other examples, David and Saul. Okay, when Saul was in the cave and David in this cave, I'm not going to go into it, but look it up yourself. Okay, if you want an example of someone who doesn't, who has their gaze set upon people, look at the prodigal son's brother. Okay, his response to his son coming home. His eyes were definitely not on Jesus, but was just on his hatred for his brother. Okay, so this is how we forgive. This is how we respond to our enemies in love. Okay, just like Peter, when he was walking on water, when his gaze was on Jesus, no fear, no anxiety, no, no wind, no storm could ever get in his way. He was doing what God was asking him to do because his gaze was set upon Jesus. Okay, but the moment that his gaze left Jesus and he started to see the wind, the waves, the darkness, his fear, his own self-doubts, he began to sink. He wasn't able to do what Jesus was asking him to do because his gaze was on the rest of the world and not set upon Jesus. So that goes for us when we think about people who have done us wrong. Okay, our enemies. If our gaze is upon our enemies, then there's no way that we could ever forgive them for what they've done. Because our gaze is on them and the world says that we are allowed to hold a grudge against them. We're allowed to hate them. Okay, but if you want to forgive, you have to set your gaze upon Jesus. Okay, because when your gaze is on him, you are not filled with this hate. You are filled with this love for Father. And you realize the love that he has for you and that he has for those who have done you wrong. Okay, forgiveness and loving our enemy is possible if our gaze is on Jesus. Okay, he makes it possible. All right, you might say to me, you know, Riley, it's easier said than done. You know, you haven't walked in my shoes. You don't know uh, my pain. You have no right to tell me how to love my enemies. And you're right. Like, I don't. I don't know what you've gone through. I don't know what you face. I can't understand your pain. Right? And that is my own human limitation. I can't know. But there's a God who knows. There's a God who has walked with you through the pain, who has mourned with you, who has cried with you, who has held you in your darkest hour. He knows. Okay, and my hope in this sermon is not that you listen to me. My hope in this sermon is that I'm just able to point you towards Jesus so that he can speak to you, so that he can show you his love for you, and so that you can get to a place to do what he's calling you to do. Okay, and so what should our response be right now? Okay, when we think of that person, that group, that family member who has done you wrong, what should we do? Okay, first, 
I want you to put your gaze upon Jesus. Okay, we've talked about this. And I want you to recognize a few things. Okay, one, recognize that God gave his life for us, for you, while we are still sinners, while we are his enemies. Okay, recognize that when we say yes to Jesus, we are waiving our rights to respond the way that we want to. Number three, recognize that God gave his life for our enemies, even if we don't like them. Okay, and recognize that God gives everyone a chance to repent and turn from their sins and follow him. And so what I want you to do is, again, set your gaze upon Jesus, but think of that person. Think of that person right now. And I just, it's, I'm going to ask you, begin to pray. Okay, pray for their heart. Pray that their eyes would be opened. Pray that they would find someone who would show them Jesus. Okay, pray for blessings. Okay, pray for their salvation. Okay, I'm going to tell you right now, this will be the hardest thing that you ever have had to do. Okay, it will be extremely hard. It is not easy But if we have our eyes set upon Jesus, he makes it possible. Okay, modern scholars agree that intercessory prayer is the summit of Christian love. All right, Bonhoeffer again wrote, through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him to God. It's a way to help us increase our love for that person. And you've probably heard it said before, but I'll keep repeating it because it's worth it. Okay, it is impossible to pray for someone without loving them. Okay, again, loving them in an agape kind of love, not a feely love. And it's impossible to go on praying for him without discovering that our love for them grows and matures. And as we pray and become complete, as we, come, as we pray, we become complete and whole just like our father is. So one commentary says, we must not therefore wait before praying for an enemy until we feel some love for him in our heart. We must begin to pray for him before we are conscious of loving him, and we shall find our love breaks first into bud, then into blossom. Okay, we must be willing to let go of our hate of our enemies and pray for them so that that hate can be turned to love. And we must be willing to let go of our rights to our property and ourselves and set our gaze upon Jesus. Okay, when researching this sermon, this thought actually quite wrecked me. It says that some scholars agree that Jesus seemed to have prayed for his tormentors while the iron spikes were going through his hands and feet. Okay, because they say the imperfect tense suggests that he kept repeating this entreaty, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Think of that. As they are piercing his hands on that cross, saying, Father, forgive them. As that nine-inch Iron spike was driven through both of his feet, breaking bone. He said, Father, forgive them. As they brought the cross up and hung him up in humiliation, he said, Father, forgive them. As they laughed and ridiculed him and divided his clothes and laughed at him, he said, Father, forgive them. When they thrust a crown of thorns upon his head and blood started to fill his eyes, he couldn't see. He said, Father, forgive them. As his spirit was leaving him, the pain overwhelming, suffocating to death, hours and hours and hours on a cross, he looked at his enemies and he said, Father, forgive them. If the cruel torture of crucifixion cannot silence our Lord's prayers for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or anger could get in the way of us, could justify the silencing of ours? 
Jesus is the reason why we are different. Jesus is the reason we respond the way we do. Jesus is the reason we have freely given away our rights. Jesus is the reason that we have been forgiven. Jesus is the reason that we have access to the Father. Jesus is the reason that we don't get to hold our hate against our enemies. Okay, Jesus is the reason we have eternal life. So Jesus is who we need to have our eyes on. Loving our enemies is not simply not hating them. It's not an absence of hate. Okay, love has form and content and compels us to actively seek the well-being of others. And so if we keep Jesus the focus of everything we do, guys, it is possible to live a life emptied of our rights, with joy in any circumstance, and to love everyone, including our enemies, with the same agape love that Jesus loved us with. So I'll do a couple of things. If you guys would close your eyes and bow your heads out of respect. I'm just gonna ask if anyone in this room, maybe you haven't said yes to Jesus yet. You've been debating doing so and you don't know. You know, this is a hard sermon to say yes to Jesus to. But if you're in this room and you're like, you know what, I want to be able to live a life where I'm not chained to my enemies, where I'm not chained to hate, where I can be free and where I can give up my rights and live with a God who loves me and gives me eternal life and joy in any circumstance. Okay, I just wanna give you an opportunity. So if that's you and you wanna give your life to Jesus today, you just wave at me. I just wanna pray for you. Yeah, I see you. Yeah, I see you. Awesome, let me pray for you quickly. Jesus, those who said yes to you, God, I pray right now, Jesus, that would you touch their hearts? Lord, would you fill them with your Holy Spirit, Lord? And when they say to you, I believe in you, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins, and I believe you rose again, defeating death and throned above it all. Lord, may they say yes to you, not just to call themselves Christians, but yes to following you through the hard times, Lord. Through the hard things that you're gonna ask, would they say yes to you and they follow you for the rest of their life, Jesus? Amen. And so would you guys stand with me if you're able to as we respond? Uh, and I wanna invite the uh, prayer team up to the front, okay, for this. So if you're the prayer team, you wanna come up. And so guys, let's... Let's respond today. Remember, we don't wanna come into a church, encounter Jesus, have this moment with him and leave the same, okay? That's not the God we worship. And so today, I just ask you to respond. Okay, if you need help giving up your rights, okay, if you haven't been able to say, Jesus, I give you my all, I'm gonna not hold that right to respond the way I do, but if you're like, I wanna respond the way that Jesus is asking me to do, to take that step, to say, I need help, Lord. I need help doing this. Okay, these people are here to stand in the gap for you. They're here to pray for you, to encourage you. Okay, so if that's you, I want you to respond today. Okay, if you're in this room and you're like, I've been just chained to a, a hate of my enemy. I haven't been able to let it go. I can't forgive them. Okay, this is a chance to respond today. Your chance to finally loose that chain. Okay, and so I challenge you, respond. Come up for prayer. Respond in your seat. Respond in just the front. I don't care, but respond. Do something. Okay, and lastly, respond if you want, if you want to put your gaze off of people and on to Jesus.
Okay, this is something we have to do every day. And so if that's you, I want you to respond. Respond in song, respond in prayer, respond in any way that Jesus is asking to you, but respond today, please. Jesus wants to change people's lives today. And so we're gonna sing, I speak Jesus, and we're gonna speak Jesus over our hearts. We're gonna speak Jesus over our enemies in a good way, okay? We're gonna speak Jesus over our minds. We're gonna speak Jesus over our desires in this world. We're just gonna speak Jesus over everything because Jesus, Jesus breaks chains. And so please, let's respond right now. You guys can begin coming up to the front and let's sing this song.